Studying the life of Moses, today is your first day with us. We're so glad you're here. Please see someone at the front, maybe Pat or Summer, who can help you find a table. Central to what we're trying to do here is not just listen to a lecture, but to process the Word of God together as men and brotherhood. And so we want to make sure that you find a table of men to do this with. Uh, we're going to be in uh, quite a few places, truthfully, in Exodus. This is kind of where we're starting to speed up. And so let me tell you a couple things before we dive in. We are studying giant uh, sections of Scripture, really, from here on out. Uh, and we've already been doing that in a lot of ways, but it's going to start picking up the pace. We're going to start picking up the pace. And, and so what, here's what that means. There is no way we're going to be able to cover every single thing word for word, um, I'm an exegetical preacher and teacher, and so that's a challenge for me. I know it's going to be a challenge for you. So here's what I would tell you. Please try to read as much as you can, either on the front end or the back end, uh, of things that we missed. Because we are going to miss things. We're going to skip over things. Being the Exodus story, for many of you who've heard this, studied this before, there, there might be something that you wanted to think about and talk about that we just didn't get to. Because otherwise, we'd be here for two years trying to get through all that Exodus has to teach us. Maybe we should do that. Maybe that's worth thinking about, but we're not doing it this time. So uh, we're going to be in Exodus 12. If you're familiar with the book of Exodus, you know that's the Passover. And you know that we studied Exodus 4 last week, which means there's quite a few chapters and events that happen in between. And we're going to talk about those briefly. So here's what I would tell you. Next week, we're going to talk about Exodus 14. And so my challenge to you between now and then is read Exodus 13 and Exodus 14. And come prepared, having already read, having already met with Jesus at some level in the, in the text of the Bible. And then I think you're going to find that this is going to be, as we start to pick up the pace, a, a bit more meaningful for you. Um, all right, so let's do Exodus this morning, Exodus 14. Well, like I said, we're going to be in a lot of different places in Exodus, um, from Exodus 4 all the way to Exodus 12. So if you have a Bible, please get it out. We're going to need it. I have a few of the main verses that we're going to look at on your sheet, uh, but that is just a small portion of what we're going to look at together. So I'm going to pray. We're going to dive in and uh, we're going to get going. Father, thank you so much for these men. Thank you for our church. Thank you for your church, and thank you for the city of Dallas. We pray, no less, that this Bible study, men getting together with this means of grace, your word, would transform us to such a degree that we would leave this place changed, and our city would be changed for it. We ask, Lord, that you would do a work in our midst that would be so amazing, we wouldn't even believe you if you were told, Father, that you would... Use us as you've used Moses for your glory and for our good. And so we pray that as we think and contemplate and consider your power through weak people and through a weak man named Moses and through weak men like us, we would leave this place as worshipers. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Exodus. We're going to be mostly in Exodus 12, but I want to start in Exodus 4. So if you have a Bible, I'm just going to touch on this. I want to pick up where we left off last week. Exodus 4, verse 21. If you remember, Moses is being called by God to lead his people out of slavery uh, and into the promised land, into freedom. 
And Moses does not want anything to do with this call on his life. Uh, He is fearful, he's afraid, he is exposed, he recognizes his own weakness and his leadership, his lack of ability to speak eloquently. Uh, He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't think he can. And, And last week we looked at how God, who is perfect and has a perfect will, calls very imperfect people. Imperfect people like you and like me. And the point of last week was, well, Moses isn't going to do it. God is going to do it through him. And in many ways, we could say, well, the reason why Moses was called to do it is because it would be obvious, both to him and to everyone, that God is the one who did this. And if you think about the, the men that God has used throughout the Scriptures for his good and glory, they've all been a bunch of no-name misfits, haven't they? And you can start with Moses and you go all the way to the end and think about uh, the disciples. Uh, these were guys who were just a bunch of broken messes, like you and like me. And so here's where we pick this story up. Exodus 4.21, it says, The Lord says to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. And that's going to be a big word for us this morning, the word power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now there is so much in just these few verses. But what we see is this juxtaposition of God's love and care and grace for His people, that Israel is His firstborn son. That's what God says. We're going to talk about that at the very end. That God is declaring that Israel is mine. These people, this is my son who I care for. So I'm going to care for my people. We see that against His wrath, His judgment. That if Pharaoh does not let my people go, I will kill his firstborn son. We see God's love and God's judgment. God's grace and God's wrath. And this morning as we begin to think about God's power in the midst of these things, I want you to think about the attributes of God. And the way that we, you can think about it is this. Who is God to you? If you're going to explain God, who He is to someone who's never met Him, never heard Him, never read the Bible, what would you tell them? What would be at the top of your list? And, great. What would be at the bottom of the list? Maybe things that you would want to leave out. Yeah, justice, judge, wrath. Where does your picture of God come from? How much of it is influenced by yourself, by others? And how much of your understanding of God comes from the Bible itself? Last week we talked about the importance of the Word of God for us as men. This morning my challenge to you is reading the entirety of Scripture. What it does is it forces you to deal with aspects and attributes of God that are perhaps uncomfortable. But even though they might make us uncomfortable, these attributes of God cause us to fall on our knees and to worship Him. 
And so this morning, we're going to talk about one such attribute that is controversial for many, for some. We talked about, we began to talk about it a little bit in week one, God's sovereignty. But this morning, I want to spin it in a different way. Not just the sovereignty of God, but His power. And there's something about the word power that brings the sovereignty of God up out of the clouds and imminently before us. It's His sovereignty expressed that God is powerful over us and through us and among us. And we're going to see this power in mighty ways. And my hope for you is what that's going to do is you'll leave this place with a little bit higher view of God and perhaps a little bit lower view of yourself and that will cause you to worship Him. You see, the power of God is not primarily about theology. It is that. And... and I'll I'll tell you, one of my old professors, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, used to say it this way, everyone's a theologian. Everyone is a theologian. The question is, what kind of theologian are you? Where do you get your theology from? If you're an atheist, you're a theologian. You have a theology, an idea about who God is. It's just not right. But as Christians as well, so often we have second-hand information about who God is that we are processing and trying to fit together. And so, yes, the power of God is about theology, but more than that, the power of God is about doxology. It's about our worship. It's that when we see and consider the power of God in our midst, we fall on our knees and we worship Him. And ultimately, we see that's the story of the Passover. And leading up to that, that's the story of the plagues. So this morning, uh, just a quote to start us off. This is A.W. Pink. I would definitely uh, recommend um, his study of the attributes of God to you. Uh, This is on sovereignty uh, in particular. But this is what he says in general about who God is and his attributes. He says, how different is the God of the Bible from the God of modern Christendom? The conception of deity which prevails most widely today, even among those who profess to give heed to the scriptures, is a miserable caricature, a blasphemous travesty of the truth. And I read that for you this morning is that having wrong theology is not about just debates. In fact, I don't want it to be about that. It's about our doxology. And Pink would go so far to say it's blasphemous. And so my goal here this morning is not to correct theology or to have a theological discussion. I want you as a man to leave this place as a worshiper, to see God for who He really is and to see His power really in four ways. First, we're going to see that God is powerful in His judgment. God is powerful in His judgment. Second, We're going to see that God is powerful in His wrath. God is powerful in His wrath. Third, we're going to see God is powerful in our redemption. God is powerful in our redemption. And lastly, God is powerful in His Son. Alright, so first, we're going to look at judgment. God's power in His judgment. I want you to turn to Exodus 7. We're going to go pretty quickly here as we kind of touch on a few things. This is Exodus 7. A few chapters ahead. 
It says, the Lord says to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet and you shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I will multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. We see God's power in His judgment. And we see this judgment in two ways. First, in this scary and very curious statement that God will harden Pharaoh's heart. He says this in Exodus 4. He says this in Exodus 7. He says it time and time again. But what we see in Exodus, if you pay attention to the narrative and what Moses is trying to show us about this progression of hardening, a lot of times we think about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, that statement, and we, like most things in the Bible, we take it out of its context and we think, well, how on earth could God do that? How is it that this God of love would harden someone's heart and then, and then punish them? But you have to remember Exodus 1. Who was Pharaoh before this? It's not like he was some great and glorious and good king who was doing well and the God's will and was doing everything right and then God came out of nowhere and was like, I'm just going to harden his heart. This was a ruthless dictator committing acts of genocide and slavery. And so Exodus tells this story really from two sides. Exodus 8.15 tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. That's what it says. Well, how, how might that work? Well, we say among men, absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? And so we see that this the more that Pharaoh becomes consumed with himself, with his own power, to the point where he views himself as a god, he is hardening himself. That's one way to look at it. Perhaps the more earthly side. But we're also given a heavenly side of the story in Exodus 9 verse 12. tells us that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And what is more is Exodus 7, Exodus 4 tells us that that is what God is going to do. And so you have these two sides, these two ways to tell the story. On one side, you have this ruthless dictator who with every breath is becoming more consumed with himself and his own power and is hardening his own heart. And on the other side of the coin, you have a God who's allowing it to happen. And perhaps with his sovereign power, enabling it to happen. And you think, well, all right, that changes it a little bit. God's not coming out of nowhere and just hardening Pharaoh's heart. What might this look like for you and for me today? Romans chapter 1, I think, gives us a picture. You don't have to turn there. Romans one twenty four says, Therefore God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I mean, Paul is recognizing that fundamentally 
as people, our sin, our great sin is that we have taken God, who's made us in His image, and we have flip-flopped it and tried to, in our best attempt, to make God into our image, to put Him into a little box, to define Him on our terms. And as we do that, we make ourselves gods, and we make ourselves the authority. And just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, we don't believe what He says. We make ourselves the authority. And in doing so, as we chase our idols and our sin, the absolute greatest act of judgment that God could have on us is to give us exactly what we want. To leave us in our sin and allow our sin to utterly consume us. That's exactly what he did with Pharaoh. He hardened his heart. He allowed and enabled Pharaoh's own sin to absolutely consume him to the point where there is no possible way he's ever going to listen to Moses, let alone Yahweh, the God of the Bible, but little old Moses. His pride won't let him. His hard heart won't let him. First act of judgment is that God hardened Pharaoh's already hardening heart. He left him to himself. Second act of judgment we see in the plagues. Ten plagues. We don't have time to get into all of them at all. Uh, I'm just going to mention them to you. And then we're going to look at the tenth and final plague in more detail. Water to blood. Frogs from the Nile. Dust to gnats. Flies. The Egyptian livestock die. Boils, hail, locusts, darkness. Nine plagues of judgment that God says in Exodus 7, these acts of judgment designed to show His power. Why? That God is powerful over Egypt and over the Egyptians, over His enemies, but also that God is powerful for His people. That both the Egyptians and Pharaoh would see this and recognize that God is God and He is powerful, but also that this oppressed people who doesn't know where to turn would look on these acts of divine power and judgment and know that God is for them. We see God's power in His judgment. So I wonder, as we talk about this this morning, what is God's judgment to you? Does it have you asking questions this morning? Because if so, I would tell you that you're not alone. Last semester we studied Romans 6, 7, and 8. We didn't get to 9. We'll get to 9 some this morning. This is Romans 9 for you. Romans 9 verse 14, Paul asks, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, and this is quoted from Exodus 9, which is on your sheet. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up. Pharaoh, I raised you up. That I might show my power in you. That my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so Paul says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Hard words to hear from men like you and me 
who would rather do it a different way, perhaps. Who would rather be gods ourselves. God, in His judgment, is trying to help us to understand that He is powerful. He's powerful. And He is judged, not you and not me. And this leads to the second point, His power and His wrath. The last plague is not just locusts or dust or darkness, but it strikes to the very heart of Pharaoh. Exodus 11, verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver or gold jewelry. Verse 4, moving on, so Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind of the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor never will before. What does this sound like to you? Well, for one, it starts. It sounds like Exodus 4. What God is promising, I'm going to harden his heart. And Israel is my firstborn son, and so if you will not let my firstborn son go, then I will kill Pharaoh's firstborn. But it also sounds like something else, doesn't it? Exodus 1. What was Pharaoh doing? Killing the sons of Israel. We begin to see this picture of, God, of the sin of Egypt and God's wrath over that sin. God's stored up vengeance. God's punishment. And if there is any attribute of God that is more controversial than His power and sovereignty, it's His wrath, right? We want nothing to do with it as people, especially as modern uh, Christians, we do not want to spend time thinking about God's wrath. And the reason why I love the Scriptures is because it forces us to contemplate all of who God is. But more than that, I would tell you this morning that you cannot begin to understand the grace of God for you unless you understand His wrath. And we're going to talk about that in a second in more detail. But you cannot understand the grace of God for you as a man unless you understand His wrath. That God, because He is just, because He is good, because He is right, because He is holy, because He is righteous, must punish sin. Has to. He has to. We talked about this last semester. That if God was a judge who did not punish sin, what kind of judge would that make Him? If you think about it in our today's terms, you elect a judge to sit on the bench and has murderers come before him, and he refuses to put them to justice, what kind of judge would that make him? Because God is a good judge who is right and righteous and good, he must punish sin. And the problem deep down that we have with his wrath is that deep down we don't think we deserve it. What we're going to see this morning is God has stored up wrath for those who oppose him, and uh, really, th- this could caricature our society today. This is Niebuhr says it this way about 
the culture that you and I have really grown up in in Christianity, that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through ministrations with Christ without a cross. What is he saying? In other words, if you throw out God and his wrath, then you throw out the cross of Jesus Christ. And really, that's what's happened. Because we do not like and cannot stomach or fathom the wrath of God, then Jesus no longer is about a cross, but he's about a good example. He's no longer about his substitutory uh, his atonement for us. He's about a good teachings. And what we find today is Jesus, his purpose, what he came to do, is directly tied to the wrath of God. And we're going to talk about that in a second. Uh, another way to think about it uh, as we continue, um, I love this uh, line, which in wardrobe, you've probably heard this quote before at some point, I'm guessing, but it's worth mentioning. Uh, Susan, trying to understand who Aslan the lion is, talking with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Oh, Aslan is a lion, a great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. And he is the king, I tell you. You see, we want to remove wrath from God because we want to put him in our box and make him a little bit safer. God is not safe, but he is good. We are going to see this goodness unfold. Again, Romans 9, Paul says, Well, what will you say to me then? Why do you find fault? Who can resist his will, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Again, hard words to hear. For some of you might say, I didn't think that was in the Bible. And it is. It is. So where does this lead us? God's judgment, God's wrath. All of this leads to our truly beginning to understand his good and gracious redemption for us. His power in our redemption, in our rescue, Exodus 12, verse 1, and this is on your sheet, and where we're going to end this morning as you go to your tables. As you talk amongst your tables, I want you to, yes, think about what we've discussed, but I want you to really focus on Exodus 12, mostly. This is the Passover. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each of you can eat and shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb will be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. 
Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they ate it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted in its head with its legs and inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning, until anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God is sending one last final act of judgment, the tenth plague, death for the firstborn over the whole land. What is interesting is that as he sends this plague, his wrath, this wrath falls on every single house. Every house. Every house in Egypt, whether it is Egyptian or Israelite. And so what is it that sets apart Israel, his own people, from his wrath? What is it that sets his own people apart from his judgment? The blood of a lamb. The blood of a lamb. Sacrificed at twilight. Consumed through the night in haste. With its blood poured out over their doorposts. So that when God's wrath and judgment falls on this house, it would pass over them. Not because of the people inside, but because of the blood on their doorposts. The blood of the Lamb. Finally, we talk about God's power in His Son. It's interesting that Israel is called God's firstborn son. As we will see time and time again, even after they're rescued and redeemed, they're more like the prodigal son. Wayward. Complaining, grumbling. And so eventually God would send a different son. A truer firstborn son. A son that when John saw him, this is what he said. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For the Jews, Passover from that day forward became an immensely important marker in their story. And every year they would celebrate it. It was everything to them. It was representative of their redemption representative of their rescue, representative of the time when God's power came down among them and plucked them out of slavery and rescued them. And that Passover was celebrated all the way up until what I would call the final Passover. Luke 22, verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Perhaps maybe you realize, maybe you didn't, that the Last Supper was at Passover. 
That's very significant. And so here they are at Passover, celebrating Passover together, Jesus and his disciples, before he goes to the cross. And he says, For I tell you, I will not eat of this Passover again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is at the table. Passover was a bloody thing. Every Passover from then on was bloody. It was bloody. Bloody because they recognized that without the blood of that sacrificial lamb at that first Passover, their rescue was impossible. That God's wrath, God's judgment, would have fallen on them as well. But it passed over them because of the blood of a lamb. And that bloody Passover continued all the way to a final Passover meal where Jesus told his disciples, almost as clearly as you could get, this is the last one. This is the last Passover. Because once and for all, we are going to sacrifice a lamb. And no longer is that lamb a physical picture of God's redemption. It is God's redemption itself come in the person of Jesus Christ. As John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ, our Passover Lamb, was sacrificed for us. Hallelujah. You can't understand grace without understanding His wrath. Like the Israelites, God's wrath would have fallen on you and on me, but Jesus Christ laid his life down as our Passover lamb, and his blood covers us, and God's wrath has passed us over. And that makes us worshipers, doesn't it? And that also makes us now his firstborn son. So I want you to go to your tables. I want you to consider God's power over and through you. But as you do, I want you to recognize His power is not just stored up in wrath against your sin, but His power was made manifest through His Son, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again on the cross. And He has passed over your sin now because of His blood. Let me pray for you. Father, we ask that you would be with us as we think about these hard truths that we read in your scripture. But as we consider them, help us to see the big picture. Help us to see how all this fits together. That with every plague, as you led up to that final plague, that horrendous plague, that your wrath fell upon the people of Egypt and their firstborn sons died. May we, may we see that that wrath is for us too. That is for our sin. And that if it were not for you sending your Son, Jesus, as our Passover Lamb to cover us in His blood. 
And so we thank you for this Passover. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue by your mercy and grace to pass over us. That you would see not our sin, but you would see the blood of your Son, Jesus. And as it covers us, and as we consider and behold the Lamb of God for our own persons, and we behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, may it change us, transform us, and cause us to worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.